The man who might just be weird enough to survive this weird time, Mike Solana, all-around tech man, he's going to tell you what's going on and how you can process it without going completely insane. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Mike Solana is the founder of Pirate Wires, an American media company reporting at the intersection of technology, politics, and culture, and he's the CMO of Founders Fund. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. It is a weird time, isn't it? Yes. You yeah. watching people just like melting down over the course of their day, like I am? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think probably the, the high-level weird thing is... Uh, social media, which I think, I mean, it's almost tried to talk about it at this point. People are always like, oh, social media is crazy, but it's, I, I, it's I, still it's, here. Well, it's also, it's newer. I think it's newer than, than we realize because we now live inside of it, but yeah. mobile adaption, I mean, what is it like? Our mobile adoption is probably something like, like 10 years at this point from when, mm -hmm. when people are, are really super online. It, it took us a minute, I think, to, a, to, to sort of get beyond jokes about Twitter being like full of bullshit and, oh, you're going to tweet about your breakfast or whatever to realizing like, wow, this is, this is stuff that actually shapes our life and shapes the physical world. And we spend a lot of our time on it. And, uh, and now I think just, just these days we're sort of starting to uh, come to a sense of what it means to us, everything from our relationships to uh, the way we acquire knowledge, how fast we, how, how fast we lose knowledge. Um, and the velocity of social media is increasing too. Uh, in terms of how just like the visceral experience of engaging in social media, whether it's TikTok or yeah, I mean, well, it's yeah, just the, the information is flowing faster. The exchanges are getting the amount faster. of time that we're spending on it is more. I think also just again the fact that we spend whole chunks of our day inside of it um, is. I don't. Want, I don't want to say it's. I never want to say it's a problem. I, I think it's. It's. It's a new thing, and I think you have to take new things seriously. So there are going to be things that we gain from it. There are a lot of things that we've gained from it, right? Like the ability to have a counter narrative to the story that you're told about the world is incredibly yeah. important. Um, but a change in behavior so massive is not to be trifled with. And a lot of people do think it's a problem. They're like, I have a problem, yeah. I'm a social media, you know, I mean, there's, we, we don't quite yet have social media anonymous, but it's it's getting there. People feel like, you know, they have to do it, whether it's for their job or just to like have information that, that they can actually maybe start to trust a little bit. They feel like it's it's the phone or nothing. Yeah, it's FOMO, I think. It's, it's, it's like not necessarily true that you have to do it, but we all certainly feel that way. And that's because it's a massive, 24 hour a day, seven day a week party that lives online and everybody's there talking. And so if you're, if you're not on it, you, you, you feel like you're missing, you are missing something. I mean, you're missing a lot of things, but do they matter uh, in the grand scheme of things? I think, yes, I, I take uh, stupid things incredibly seriously, um, but probably I could be on the phone a little bit less. <laughs> what are you on social media? Uh, tw X, Twitter, mm -hmm. X is my, my big one. Um, and then, uh, that's kind of, I mean, signal chats. That's, yeah. It's like, that's, that's, that's the real crack right now. Social is, media is the signal chats, uh, my, my group chats. And then I guess, uh, I do, I do dip into, I have to check out the spy app every now and then to see what, uh, what the trends are on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Instagram is where I go for like weird not weird for like soothing food content i would say weirdly soothing yeah i just i just want it's it's oddly I, satisfying it's relaxing yeah. um yeah. yeah that's it but mostly i mean i live on x you're a pretty american guy proudly american yes uh what are you taking away from tiktok right now what do you what do you go to find and what, what do you come away well with? i'll tell you what's really interesting on tiktok and i don't see anybody talking about this um so i go on i check in I'll check out it once a day and I have time limits on all my apps. So I'll, I'm on TikTok no more than 10 minutes a day. Uh, and every single day without fail, I get pumped an ad for, uh, it's a Gaza related, they're totally bombed, just destitute, sad. It's this horrific thing. I'm, I believe it's a UN fundraising campaign. Um, now it's separate. I don't, 
without getting into like Israel Gaza stuff, it's very important that 150 million Americans every single day are getting pumped an ad for it that shapes the discourse around it. This is something that you can't block because I've tried because I don't go to TikTok for that. Uh, it is something that if you report it, uh, it does not it does not leave your feed in, in sort of following days. It's, it comes back relentlessly, the exact same ad every single day. You're forced to look at it and scroll beyond it. And again, I think because social media is so new, we take things like that as maybe not really that big of a deal, but it's, it's a huge deal that 150 million Americans are being pumped an image that has a very clear um, opinion or perspective, let's say, on a very important geopolitical event, and you kind of can't scroll past it. I think it's something that our government should care about. It doesn't really matter. This issue doesn't matter to me so much as the fact that the control exists. And so yeah. that's something that I've noticed on TikTok recently. Yeah, it's a pattern. It's like a billboard that you keep driving past every morning. Like it starts to become part of your environment. Uh, yes, and I think it, it just, it shapes your sense of what is the perspective you're supposed to have. You, you naturally adopt, this is how social media works. This is how human beings work. This is how advertising works, is people sort of, look around subconsciously for cues on what to believe. That is, the, the more people who are doing something, uh, the more you feel that that's what you should do and or how you should feel. Even if you are fiercely independent, these things creep into you. It's why you change the way that you dress so often, or so many people do, without even kind of realizing it suddenly. They want a certain kind of shirt or pant or whatever. That principle is at play with political opinions as well. And um, to have that much power in the hands of someone who I just don't consider the people who run TikTok as very much caring about what's in the best interest of America. And uh, that's concerning to me. You see the hearings, the latest hearings, Capitol Hill? Uh, this last hearing I did not, we were, I was just finishing my, my, uh, my newsletter, so we're about to get to it. I saw, I, I saw just a couple clips from it. It was crazy how many of them they got there. Yeah. Um, well, but, the TikTok guy, sir, I'm, I'm from Singapore. Like, yeah. this, I'm in it, don't, don't kill me on national television. Yeah, he just doesn't want to cover all of the reporting that's been done on yeah. the data that's gone directly to China. Um, and it was an easy moment. I did see that moment. And mm -hmm. it, it was an easy moment for him to sort of do this thing that I find incredibly frustrating. And this is beyond the world of social media. This is a cultural thing where you are trying to cut to a very important issue for discussion and there's there's a slight where you're pushed into a conversation on race and racism and with china in particular you're told repeatedly or we've been told for years it's kind of i think cooled off a little bit recently but for years we were told that you were to criticize china was racist. So even Trump's famous, the China virus thing, right? You got to go to your local wet market or else you are a racist. Right. That was the message. Yes, yes, yes. If you don't believe that, that this virus was created by a Chinese guy eating, what is it, pangolin soup or something, then you are the racist. Uh, but just, that's crazy. That's a crazy, the fact that you can't talk about these things without a slip into race. And of course, uh, I mean, it was smart of the TikTok guy. Was, he's like totally got out of it and uh, it looked great. That's what's all over the news right now is- Well, Lee, is, Lee Kuan Yew, I, I think it might still be enforced. So if not for a long time, Singapore, it was like 49% cap on Chinese uh, in Singapore. You know, there's, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Well, I don't know much about Singaporean politics or care, to be honest. I care about the fact that American data is being accessed by people in China. That's a problem. And it comes up again and again and again, and we're not doing anything about it. And it's just like, it's one of these things that's so obviously a problem. It's like, it's so obviously something that 20 years from now, you're going to look back and say, wait, why didn't we do anything about that? No one thought that was a problem. And it's like, actually, everyone thought it was a problem and we still did nothing about it. And I mean, this is truly, that's the case too. I mean, this is a roughly bipartisan issue where people, yeah. it posed the question like, hey, how do you feel about the data leaks? You're like, oh, it's really bad. We should definitely do something about it. And yet nothing happens. And that's Well, just, there's this guilt tripping, which is this is where young people hang out. And if you take this away from them, they're going to just uh, like... That was the Vivek. Shotgun in the... Yeah. Where, where he said, well, I had, I had dinner with, it was either Jake or Logan Paul. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that this is an important thing for young people. And it's like, bro, do you work for China? I don't understand this. Like, because you had dinner with Jake Paul, you've decided that it's okay 
for this to persist. Well, this, was he was he arguing just like d justifying the fact that he had a presence on TikTok, or was he trying? He to changed his position on TikTok to. Uh, so I, I'm not actually even familiar with his original. The actual, I don't want to get it wrong, the actual no. verbatim orig original position on it. But after dinner with Jake Paul, he announced that he had changed his position on TikTok and now he was in favor of defending its persistence on the App Store. Um, and he declared that if we had a problem with it, it's America and we should build another app and we should compete against it. And that actually, I mean, this is classic libertarian yeah. uh, sort of... Um, response to any call to ban anything. It's like, well, this is a free market. You know, why aren't you, why aren't you just competing against them? Um, and logically, it's a very inviting kind of argument. Americans are kind of predilected to go like, well, you know, after all, you know, yeah. shouldn't we just kind of... It's... If we were living in a world where American social media companies weren't banned in China, mm. it would be more compelling to me. But this mm. is the problem with free trade, and this is like really where one of the main issues where I kind of departed from libertarianism over the last few years. Um, we cannot have a market dynamic where Americans are competing in every single market in the world, um, or, or Americans were, I'm sorry, we cannot have a market dynamic where every single country in the world is permitted to to compete in the American Europe, market, right. but we are not per permitted to compete abroad. Yeah. That is just, that is, that's just stupid. It's a valve. Why, why would we accept those, yeah. those terms? That's, that, is a, that is a fight that we have, we have accepted in which we can only lose, or I mean, we still dominate, but it's like with a weighted jacket on. And um, I don't like that in any aspect of our economy. And I don't think the tech sector is any different. And one thing I, I feel like we have this, and you really saw this in Vivek's campaign, this, um, you know, he came from tech sort of adjacent spaces, but he uh, threw the industry under the bus a few times. And this was one of them. The other one was during the bailout, the bailouts for Silicon Valley Bank. Um, there is this strange idea that you see uh, in some right-wing circles that the tech industry is like this elitist institution and it's not real America and whatnot. It's, a, it's the American tech sector. It is an important, it is, uh, there are businesses. And if you're a nationalist, which Vivek pretended to be, then you should care about that. You, you have to care about, you have to care about American industry. And when you're doing things like that, when you're talking about things like TikTok or you're talking about international trade deals and whatnot, your goal should be uh, what is in the best interest of the United States, and that includes U.S. industry. Not not just includes. That's a, a major aspect of it. That's like one of the most important aspects of it. That's, so TikTok, what do you want? You you ban it, uh, delete ban it, it, sell it. It should be banned. Give, give it to Uncle Larry. It Larry should It should absolutely be banned. Ban okay, it. Just flat ban. Just a straight up. It's you're gone. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for okay. playing. You failed. Do you think that if that happened, it would start to cause a chain reaction of other bands? Well, I think all Chinese software should be. And I, th I think until they allow us to compete in the Chinese market, mm -hmm. there should be a blanket ban of Chinese companies yeah. uh, selling into the U.S. market. For at least start with tech companies, like a one to one. At least start with the, at least start with social media companies. Like if you if you want to kind of dance around it. But I don't understand, uh, I don't understand a one-sided free trade agreement. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's logical. Not, not very libertoid, though. No, I'm over it. They say good men create good times. Well, the same goes for businesses. Good people are foundational to a successful enterprise. The sad fact is, hiring pools today are bleak. Political demands, petty entitlement, open incompetence, cowardice, they're commonplace. You gotta reach the people who are keen to join your business and have what it takes to make it a success. That's why New Founding has created a network of high-grade professionals ready to join grounded American businesses. These are individuals often from elite organizations who are ready to hit the ground running with a team and a mission that supports their values instead of working against them. Aligned companies are using the New Founding Network to hire those people who they need to match culture and mission and make their team a success. Apply now for access to the New Founding Talent Network at newfounding.com backslash talent. You'll get connected with the candidates who will build up your business. That's newfounding.com backslash talent. Do you have a political identity in 2024? You know, I am, I don't. I 
and I have, uh, I care about us. Uh, there was a, years ago, there was this tweet from someone in media who I hated, considered her dangerous, scary person. And uh, this was before I had any kind of profile online. I could no, not no fight names, back. I was, not I'm names. not going to name her. Um, <laughs> she's not even relevant anymore. But back okay. then, she was very relevant, and especially in, in, like, in the sort of media circles. And uh, she said something once that I couldn't, dis despite my dis contempt for her, I, I could, it was a great tweet. And she was like, uh, it's not that I hate you guys. It's just that I only love us. And I think that's my politics. Yeah. That's like, the, I care about what, I care about American prosperity. Um, and that's kind of where it begins. I think freedom is my true north, you know? Uh, but you don't want to have, you, you don't, you don't want to be an idiot about it. And you don't want to make, you don't want to sort of permit certain kinds of behavior that uh, erodes the foundations of society. I mean, yeah. there were a lot of problems that we're facing right now. And I think we have to just fix them. And that's like, the main thing when it comes to things like crime, for example, we have to just fix it. I think that I think that that non-identity identity is growing. I mean, I think a lot of it actually fueled Trump's rise. Yeah. And I think there are, you know, even sort of people on the left right now who are just kind of like trying to, to wrestle with the magnitude of what the Biden years have been uh, kind of feeling like. The left. What is that? You know, the right. Is that well, even the thing? Pulled, it, the the frac the the factions, the fracturing. It's it's real. It's getting fractal. Yeah. Did you see the uh, the the graph that went viral on uh, identity on the left and right? This basically diverging along sex. So yeah. the massive spike in left identified young women. Worldwide. So was, with Zoomers specifically, but yeah. yes, world a worldwide trend. Um, that's weird. That's that's a strange. In some sense, I mean, it, it's under, it, it wasn't shocking to me. You kind of felt that for a while, and the policies somewhat grafted that. But um, this wasn't, this wasn't while always, there was always a slight correlation, it, this, it was not that divergent in, nothing, nothing even close to that uh, in the time of like Kennedy, for example. Oh, wow. right? you, you had a party, both parties had, for example, the national interest um, as, a, as something that mattered. And to have, to lose common ground like that in such a bizarre way, not over policy so much as like this sex-based identity, um, I think it does, it just, it, it speaks to this broad confusion and, uh, I don't know, weirdness of this kind of moment that we're entering that is increasingly very sort of internet-like. Yeah. I think that the internet, I think yeah. we're becoming... The, the weirdness, the chaotic sort of clownishness of the internet landscape that we spend our days on. Definitely. I don't have a TikTok account from what I've seen on there. Uh, and yeah, there's like a lot of like based memes and you know, there's, that's kind of fascinating in its own right. Uh, but I, I, th I think I used to see a lot of dancing and <laughs> yeah. now I see like a lot of crying. Yeah. And sort of the psychosis uh, that I see on TikTok is like, it's the place where you know, you're safe to be your sort of most joyful and also your most despairing. And this kind of, you know, this like very bipolar kind of swing between like manic and Depressive posting um, is something that I've seen on TikTok, but it's it's everywhere else too. You know, people are really just sort of zinging back and forth. Yeah, I mean, the thing that works on TikTok, it's different on the margins, but it's the same as what works on every social media platform, which is novelty mm -hmm. um, that makes you stop and go, ah, what is that? Um, and then there are different versions of that. There's the polarizing thing, so it makes you angry. There is the shocking thing. There is the funny thing. Um, the sexual thing, like these are the different things that, that kind of grab people and these are the different tools that people use on these platforms. And, um, and this is why people say tech is hacking our brains. Well, that's true. They want to hack our minds. <laughs> that's, I mean, that is what the algorithm does. Well, the, but this, I mean, this isn't just like sort of evil guys sitting in a, a glass donut sort of trying to destroy people's minds. There might be some of those people. I couldn't possibly No, comment. no one's trying to destroy it. But this it. is the medium. But I mean, the, this is the nature of the, the same, technology. They're not doing anything different than advertising, advertising executives or television executives are doing. They're just doing it at a scale at a they're, much higher velocity. Not, I mean, you can see in real time... For example, oh, I don't want to say uh, on on a <laughs> snip snip. I was on a, a major network not too long ago, yeah. and um, they knew 
by the minute when people were tuning off and tuning on, um, and you make adjustments based on that. So you're seeing the exact same thing in, in tech that you've seen in every other medium. It's just people are trying to get the most attention possible. It's always been that way. It's just that in tech, on social media, they're way better at it. Um, now, I think that they're, that's clearly a thing that is happening. Again, like I said earlier, there are benefits to the medium and there are problems with the medium. And this is something that I worry about. It's, it's, it's more than even the algorithm. I think it's, it's the concept of, you remember when you were first online, you know, it's like the early 2000s when that was like the kind of first, for me at least, that was the first wave of being online on like message boards and things like this. You'd go online uh, for a set limit of time, for a set amount of time, and um, you kind of poke around and you would follow your own curiosity. You would search for things. Yeah. Um, it's like a library. You go to the all, computer room and just sort of sit down. It was very much like a library. It was all self-directed. Social media is fundamentally different in this way where you go there and you're given information and then you react to it. And the way that you react to it determines the next crop of information that you get in this sort of endless scroll. Uh, that's much more like television. It's just a very, 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 very good version of television. And I think that that shift from exploring to re receiving is really the kind of the most fundamentally different thing that's uh, the, the most fundamentally different thing about it. Um, that's going to be the thing that, that really changes our behavior. I think that's going to be the thing that has an impact on, on culture. Uh, the differences between sort of, I would say Gen Xers and Zoomers today, uh, you're going to see that in the way that they approach the world. And, and I, I, I think it's that. And uh, I don't think it, we really know what the long-term bad or good of that specific thing is yet. Well, and then we have this whole sort of hurricane going and we're going to fly over and just drop AI on top of everything. Yeah. Does, that, does that concern you at all? I mean, AI is great. I think it's awesome. Uh, I think it's going to be less awesome if it's controlled by the government. Yeah. Um, that concerns me to that's, have... That's what they want. That's what they're doing. That's the thing that concerns me. So I think that's the thing that we have to watch out for. It's the same thing with social media. I mean, they'll find a way to try and control it even if they can't directly control it. And that's what we saw with the Twitter files. I mean, they were behind the scenes influencing all sorts of policy. And then if they're not even doing it directly um, or sort of directly indirectly, there's this culture that exists among the people in charge in sort of every fount of power. So government, media, uh, I don't know, like banking, honestly, yeah. business, the, all Absolutely. the executives in the C-suites, like you just follow the money. Where do those dollars go? They all go to the Democratic Party. So you know there's a sort of single dominating worldview among the people who run things. And so when it comes to things like social media censorship, I think that what happens is uh, it's less of a conspiracy and more of just this is what the world looks like when one very small class of people controls everything. And, um, and that happens to be the party of domination. Yes. The party of we should have just consolidate, centralize. I mean, do you think that in a sense, whoever is the dominant player in AI is the government going forward? I think it's too soon. Here's what I know about AI right now. I know that um, it's already useful when it comes to the generation of images and text uh, in a way that I find Certainly, some of the people who, uh, maybe I don't use it as much, but my, I have, I have employees who, who use it and love it and every day. It's like a, a tool that they use to help with uh, research and um, compiling like, like basic rough draft information to send each other on like memos and things like this. Uh, this is on the Pirate Wire side, not the Founders One side. Um, I can see with what's already sort of been demonstrated a role in all sorts of like assistant work and uh, what I'm really excited about is legal assistance, uh, medical assistance. I think those things are coming. I think that when we start talking about where this could go, you're looking at a, you're talking about a machine that thinks it's a, that's a paradigm altering technology. And so anyone who tells you exactly what that's going to look like is lying to you. There's no one knows. It's a fundamentally unknowable thing, and um, and so I, yeah, I don't know where where that all takes us. I do know that you don't want 
um, you don't want one very small group of people who are totally ideologically aligned to control it um, because that's too much power for anybody potentially. I just, like I said, I don't know what AI is going to become. But usually, the alternative to to one uh, one ring to rule them all is war. Is you got five or six different groups and they all just start trying to kill each other to to climb to the top or even just to survive. Yeah. Is the world too small? Can can we have? Can we share the world with with five or six different sort of AI superpowers? Yeah. I don't know. I do know that we're going to find out because <laughs> what, because whatever we do in America, that will only matter in America. You, you have people across the world who are racing as quickly as they can to um, catch up to what we've done in uh, really mostly California is where yeah. most of this stuff has, has, has reached its present state of maturation. There's a lot of work in England years ago, but it's now dominated in, uh, in San Francisco. And um, yeah, there's a race to catch up. I think people will catch up. And at that point, we'll find out what it looks like. Does the present state of, uh, of California and, and San Francisco give you concerns about the direction the technology is flowing in based on its, its California centrism? No, that doesn't. Um, the people who are working on it are super smart, idealistic, good people. Um, the city, the sort of horrific, rotted state of not just San Francisco, but really almost every single city in the country, has more to do with the, let's say, in San, let's narrow it to San Francisco. In San Francisco, that has more to do with the abdication of responsibility among the sort of tech elites than it does to do with tech elites shaping the city. They don't have anything to do with it. Like, a lot of people don't even vote. Um, that's kind of, the, I think, one of the big misunderstandings of what's happening in San Francisco. What you have there is nothing to do with really tech people when it comes to city government. That's a small entrenched group of far left-wing activists, um, like a lot of a lot of real estate sort of connections and like old money and things like this, but uh, they've been around forever and they are their own separate fount of power. They've run the city into the ground and there are analogs to them, like I said, in every city in the country. Um, and that's the group that you have to kind of get rid of. What you really need, what I would like to see, are people in tech actually spending a lot more time in politics. And that's where I really give them, that's, that's where I find it reasonable to critique them. Yeah, well, it, it does to. create resentment when it's like, you know, you guys build this, this magic hot air balloon and you climb in and you sort of float away and the rest of us are here, you know, having a knife fight to get like a, a, a bottle of aspirin at CVS. I mean... But that's on all of us. That's like sure, we all yeah. need to be voting for more sane local politicians. Like you can't, I, as someone who spent a lot of time focused on local politics, um, I have a, it's very frustrating meeting people in, for example, San Francisco who don't even know that we have a board of supervisors or, or if they do, like how many of them and who they are and yeah. who their supervisor is. Very That's a legislative branch and you don't even know. So it's like that it, there's, this is not, these problems are not problems of capitalism. They are not problems of technology. They are, the San Francisco government has over $13 billion a year for its budget. Um, they're, they have plenty of funding uh, and endless fraud and waste and um, grifty bullshit. Like, that's the problem, and that's what needs to be addressed. And that's a political problem. It's way less fun to talk about because there's no, there's no silver bullet. You're not going to build some special machine or secret magical tonic um, that you're going to whip up in your kitchen and solve the problem. It's like you have to just get involved and spend a lot of time caring about, like, who's elected the DCCC or something, which is the group that decides who's going to get endorsed for the Democratic Party in San Francisco. It's like, it's really a annoying, uh, nitty-gritty political things. That's what matters. And, um, and so, no, I don't think that people should be really thinking much about the random tech millionaire at all. They should be focused on, on that problem. It's like, how do we fix that problem? They can be thinking about the tech millionaire or billionaire when it comes to sort of asking for donations to political parties. And I do think those people should be, all of tech should be way more involved there yeah. um, on the side of sanity. And then held to account when they put money into the coffers of people who are, you know, like <laughs> Joker from Batman. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's, we, we gotta get better people into office. 
local government is, you know, democracy is not just sort of a thing that you can say to try to shut down an argument. It's like an actual on the ground local government. You know, that that is what that is. And and it's not very glamorous and people do want to avoid it. And they do want to sort of like, isn't there some thing that we can invoke that will just take care of this for us? And and no, you can't yimby your way out of local government. You can't innovate your way out of local government. No, there's no, I actually, you know, I worked on a podcast. um, So back at Founders, so at Founders Fund, Back like a few years ago, six years ago, I started the show. It was called Anatomy of Next. And um, season two is my favorite. And we did, uh, my idea was like, I'm going to do every aspect of turning Mars into a habitable world. And we're going to draw on, you know, technologists and scientists who I've met through my work at Founders Fund. And um, and it was awesome. It was fun. It was exciting. It did well. I enjoyed it. Season three... Uh, began release, I was working on it leading up to what then became COVID. And so I started releasing it right around the time that COVID shut everybody inside. And uh, season three was called Asylum. And my idea was that I was going to take my what I learned from season two, building a world, and I was going to narrow it down to this much, what should be a much easier problem. I mean, we are building a world's crazy. We're going to build a we're going to rebuild the city of San Francisco. How do we fix San Francisco? And what I learned pretty quickly into the process not quickly enough because I was kind of halfway through releasing them before I realized why I was so depressed working on it was that there was no, there was no technology solution to any of this. There, there was no way to rebuild this thing in a way um, that could be so exciting as the blank slate that was Mars because the solutions were all tedious and boring and, um, and not a blank slate at all. They involve working with crazy people and convincing idiots to do things that you want them to do in the best interest of everybody. Um, and that's just a very different thing. <laughs> Suffering, sacrifice, who wants that? Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, you know, this stuff, it is, it's ultimately, you know, these, these, are, these are matters of the heart. These are, these are spiritual matters. And if you just push all that off the table and say, no, we're just going to ideology our way out of it, or we're just going to build our way out of it, yeah. you're missing what it is that makes us human. That's interesting, too, what you said about, about uh, ideology. So that's also something I've been thinking about. Is, and that's kind of my libertarian. That's, that was where I started parting ways with that. Um, I just want things to work well in the sort of obvious way, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the thing that should, ma- I don't want there to be crime uh, in the streets that is just like brazenly taking place before me in the streets of San Francisco or whatever. Like I want to solve the homeless problem. I want to solve the housing problem. I want people to be able to afford a home. Um, like I want good public transportation and public education and funding into you know new technologies and sciences. And I want people to be able to run a business without being crippled by onerous regulation and things like this. Um, I don't almost care how I get there at this point. And when it comes to ideology, it's like, well, that's a, it's almost a, it, it can be a purity test that just gets in your way uh, of what is the truth, which is staring you in the face. Like, you know what is right and wrong. And you know what uh, a good city, what a good city is. We all kind of have a sense of that. Um, I think we all want the same things. And I just, I don't want to call it anything anymore. I just want to talk about those things. You consider yourself spiritual in, in the current year? I consider myself religious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think spirituality leaves a lot on the table. I, I think I think I think it's maybe something that we tend to move towards because we're afraid of being religious. Because we've been taught that we're not allowed to be religious. Um, but I get a lot from faith and uh i don't know calling it spiritual for some reason it just it feels too small i think that is that is very well said although the uh the the religious people who who i trust and i listen to talk about being spiritual and then i i trust the spiritual when it's coming from the religious right i mean this is one of those topics where there are people who are way smarter and way more obsessed with the topic and i just i mean i defer to them for whatever is right in general i know what's right for me personally well, you, I mean, you look around the world at, at, at all these different uh, I, you, digital superpowers or whatever you want to call them, uh, scrambling to reassert some kind of real sovereignty in, at a time when, when software is eating the world and digital is off. Um, 
whether it's China or Russia or India, Israel, you know, Vatican, Europe, or, or here in the US, it is a race to figure out how to reconnect that kind of original religious tradition to this question of what, what is there about us that gives us some authority still over these machines? Because if it's not there, then you know, your face rips yeah, off on the I th roller coaster. I think that that is a good point. I, when it comes to artificial intelligence in particular, there's something about watching a machine create a beautiful image instantaneously that it feels maybe that something importantly human has been taken from you. Um, but if you sort of look under the hood, you realize that the machine's not creative at all. It's approximating what we've all created. Yeah. Um, the humans are still in the driver's seat, like fundamentally when it comes to language models. Like that's where it's still, it's learning from us only. Um, and if it's ever going to be learning from itself, like you could create a model of AI generated images, for example, and those would still, those would be like copies of approximations of copies of copies. It's like, it's, it's not um, that sort of spark of genius is not really there. Now I've talked to people who, I know a lot of people, a lot of people working on this stuff mm -hmm. who believe that we're language models, that mm -hmm. we kind of think and learn the same way. I just, there is where my faith and God, I think, comes, there's like this belief. There's this knowing, I just know that's not true. I just know that there's something else happening here. And um, I think anybody who's ever been struck by inspiration of any kind probably knows that too, deep down in their heart, that there's something else about us. And, um, and yet, the drive to copy is very powerful and very fundamental to humans as well. Of course. Like, I think that is a huge part of us, but I, I think, I believe that there is something else. Yeah, that, that mimetic impulse. Yeah. For, for good and for ill. But we are, we do not create ourselves. And that distinction is huge, you know? And we're already seeing, I think, with some of these, these big models that to the degree that they are just kind of relying on, even if it's an enormous data set, the more the model sort of refers to that set, there's we're even starting, I think, to see like the the scope of what it produces start to narrow a little bit. You know, you make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. At a certain point, like you've got something very thin, and and you really lose the fidelity, and it becomes divorced from the original, and then it loses its meaning. I mean, Baudrillard was writing about all this stuff. You know, what, what's now long ago, where it's like when you make that leap over into the purely virtual and you say goodbye to the originals and you're just dealing with copies of copies, you know, it, it does lose that spark. I mean, I probably, when I use the word copy, that was probably not fair. It's, it's, they're predicting what you would generate if, but it's based on things that we've created. It's yeah, based on things it's, that humans have created. Um, there is, I don't want to demean the, leap it's amazing what's been built and what can be done and i think there's a lot of incredible exciting utility in it um but i just don't think i don't think that i don't think it's complete and um i can be proven wrong and then you know that means in a few years these machines are going to be writing as well as i do and I will not be writing anymore for Pirate Wires because my job will be replaced. Um, and uh, it'll be marketing better than I could ever market, like at, at Founders Fund or something. And I just think that at that point, this is where we get to the giant question mark. If that's true, if it's really that incredible, then we just, the world is so completely different that it doesn't even, it's not even worth it's not even worth spending time now discussing because it's like, I don't even know how, how do you begin solving a problem that you can't see? It's, you're talking about the total transformation of the physical world. And um, I think probably we're a little bit sort of maybe overhyping what's happening here. Yeah.
well, I mean, just just the the absurdity of of this attitude, which is spreading, of of like religion is is bullshit. That's why I worship technology. And it's uh. like, ah, oh, bro, like, do you not see? But no, I mean, it, it is powerful enough, and we are in kind of this, you know, this weird moment where uh, people are trying to find something that has an ultimate authority to it, and they want it right now because they feel like there's this vacuum right now, and that's what they're turning to. Yeah, but I mean, this. So when it comes to Search, for example, the power of, separate from the image generation, we talk about just ChatGPT or something, you're getting answers. It's like a new form of Google. The power of it, the reason it's so popular, um, is that it functions in the same way that when I have a question and I'm in a room with my colleagues or my friends um, and I wonder something, I ask them. That's what we're, that's what we're designed to do, uh, is to ask each other for help and to, to have a sort of personal relationship with the person who's giving us information. And in fact, when we get information from someone we trust and someone who sounds like a human, um, someone who we know, it means a lot more to us. That's just how we're wired. Absolutely. And so in this way, search, a Google search, was never superhuman. Um, this is much more like us. It is, is much more, uh, use the word authoritative, it's, it's much more authoritative because that's where we place, a thought. We place authority in the personal and it, it is highly personal. It, or at least it seems highly personal. It, yes, I mean, these are machines that, that can maybe even simulate a soul. Uh, that doesn't mean it's the same thing though. You know? yeah. and, if, and if we are called to love our neighbor, you know, how can we love our neighbor if we're just systematically substituting a machine for a person? Yeah, that's a separate theory? problem. I mean, I hate to be so, negative on technology. I think it's offered so many amazing things. I don't think you're being things. negative. I think you're being sort of, uh, you know, fair. Yeah, but I, I think that the atomization of society is also a huge problem. And um, AI is not the big problem here. AI is a new thing that we don't even really know what's going on with it yet, right? It's like, it's just anything fundamentally new is going to be really hard to predict. And um, the average person's not using ChatGPT. Uh, the things that are driving us apart now is like, it's our ability. I think there's something, there are these weird trade-offs that we don't think about. So something as apparently unambiguously amazing as FaceTime, where uh, you have this great ability to now chat with your mom and dad. Mm -hmm. um, with the real mom and dad. Back in New Jersey. Yeah, and right. you're like, hey, what's up? Well, because it's so good at approximating contact with your parents, mm -hmm. I think it reduces the incentive to go and visit them. And uh, that is true of a lot of different kinds of technology. When we saw this push in, during COVID to remote work, um, there, was a lot, there were a lot of people in, in tech who were like, this is the future. Like COVID just tipped us over. We're all going fully remote now. And I was just like, there's, there's no way because I, I just, I personally, I'm so miserable right now. I hate it so much. This is not, this is not human behavior. I want to be, what, the thing that I am betting on, I, I am betting that people are going to want to be with each other forever. And um, there are going to be things that make that just a little more difficult, or it's just a little bit easier to trick yourself into thinking you are doing that. Yeah. And, and those things will reduce the amount of time that we spend together. Um, but I think that impulse still exists. It still exists inside of us. And we're going to, I hope, I, I hope that we find our way back to each other in a sort of mass movement type way. Um, I do know that the reason, I, I don't know that I know this. I do suspect the reason so many people are so unhappy is because of this though. It's because of this, it's not an AI generated uh, friend or family. It's like this piece of glass between you and everybody that you love. It's just like on some level we, understand that this is simulated and it does serve these incredibly important purposes now in, li in life and you get so much out of it and um and you can do so much more you can increase productivity and you, again it's amazing to see your parents when you're you know away at work or your partner or whatever but um wouldn't it be better if you were just living down the block from them which is yeah. like my dad lived a block away or two blocks away from my grandma you know i used to walk there and uh my uncle was up the street and my aunt was down the other way. And that, um, me growing up, that was already a weird thing. And uh, I am worried about that becoming, worried about that becoming weirder. 
And, um, you know, I don't want to blame technology. This is like a modernity, um, which I guess is a product of technology, but it's not tech, right? Like this is a longer, this is a century and a half ongoing march towards the atomization of society. And um, Well, these are deep-seated temptations. Alexis de Tocqueville talks about this stuff where it's like, you know, there is a part of us that wants to just fold up into this kind of self-enclosure and kind of disappear, you know, stop the world I want to get off. And you fall out of the habit of loving and you fall out of the habit of not just the joys of love, but the, the crap that you have to put up with yeah. from the people you do love. Because we are all these sort of like flawed, you know, incomplete beings. And if you fall out of the habit of doing all those things and you kind of forget how to do them, then you, when you do see a person in real life, you either ignore them or just consider them to be some kind of monster. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just, I don't know. I don't have any, I completely, yeah, I agree with that. Um, well, we did social media. We did AI. Uh, let's talk about Bitcoin real quick. Um, you know, very powerful technology uh, in the running to be a world computer uh, kind of thing where if, if uh, it falls into the wrong hands and you get sort of one world computer that's bad, then obviously that would be bad. Uh, but this is a technology that I think, you know, is distinct because ordinary Americans, yeah, you know, maybe you need a 30-minute tutorial or whatever. They can take advantage of it right now to build markets and institutions that respond to what it is that we're trying to protect. Yeah. It's a lot harder for people to do that with AI, which you mentioned. It's harder for them to do it with social media. It can, be, can become very passive. Uh, where do you think Bitcoin's headed? I think it's not going anywhere. I think it's going to live for a very long time. I think that's the interesting thing that we're seeing now as it kind of creeps back. I mean, we see... Th so this is an interesting thing that we see every couple of years. It's not like a newly interesting thing. Bitcoin is dead. Bitcoin dies. And then it comes back and people say, ah, that's so interesting. It keeps coming back. That's important. And then they forget it and it dies and it comes back. And now it's sort of coming back again. Uh, it's not just Bitcoin, right? This is just the nature of blockchains. And Bitcoin is the most important one mm -hmm. because it was the first and it has the brand. And when it comes to something that is abstract, that matters. What people, the, all that matters is how it lives in someone's head. Uh, but the technology, if it can't be hacked, and it really is this super durable, online, scarce resource, mm -hmm. uh, then you have an alternative to the global economy, or you have, an, you, have a, you have an alternative to the sort of controlled economy. And that is just, I think about it as, as an escape valve it's like this important um or safety an escape hatch it's like this life vest that we have now and and i it sort of sits there in in my mind it's something that i'm glad exists um that i think probably it's worth everybody having a little bit of exposure to and uh i think that the more people who have exposure to it the less likely it is that the government's going to be able to ban it and the less likely the government is... Or nationalize it, which they want to do with just about everything else now. Well, they can't nationalize. They'd have to actually just buy all the... You know, there's... It's... it's hey, they, they, called can, in, they called in all the gold. What they're trying to do is create their own... They want to create their own version of it. Now, what they could do is they could ban the exchanges and they could say you're not allowed to have them, mm -hmm. but they could never actually... They could never actually... It, actually, the gold is a good comparison. Like, you, they could call it in, but if you held it... What are they going to do? They'll put you in jail if they find out, but like they have to find out. So that is well, the, it's the, getting easier to find out. They want to six hundred dollars moved. You're like you, they want to, they want to know everything. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin is if Bitcoin was adopted in a, this is the kind of ironic thing about it. It's easy to trace Bitcoin mm -hmm. if it's used in mass adoption. Um, all of the blockchain transactions are public, so to some extent, you should be happy about that. Like they should, the government should be happy about it, but. Um, you could also just not use it or buy it anonymously. And um, I think it's, it's the opposite of AI. You mentioned this as well. It's true. It's sort of very different than AI in, in a sense that um, Bitcoin is a decentralizing force that is threatening to power, whereas AI is a naturally centralizing technology that is um, and rare in the world of technology. Technology tends to be uh, contrary to power. It tends to be disruptive of power. Uh, what AI is doing is it's concentrating in the hands of companies and governments that are already quite powerful. And it's, um, that's, it's like sort of novel in that way in the world of technology. But Bitcoin is classically, and bi blockchains in general, are classically 
like real disruptive technology um, that you kind of want on your side in the face of tremendous centralizing power, uh, like what we're seeing or we're going to see, I think, in, in a world post AI. So what do I think about Bitcoin? I think it's more important than ever, probably. Yeah, agreed. Uh, you're in the C-suite at uh, Founders Fund, at least virtually. Yes. Um, your job is to kind of know what the hell's going on. Um, I, without giving away any trade secrets, um, how does Founders Fund sort of assess this economic situation that we're in right now? I think that, so Founders Fund is a venture capital firm. It's yeah. a very specific part of all of this. Uh, it's investing in private companies, um, specifically startup, technology startups. And um, there, I think that it's the thing that most other firms have not adjusted to that we have is that the climate's different. There are, so we've reduced the, the amount of our, our last fund. Uh, there's too much money. There are less people building uh, the companies they once were. There's still incredible deals out there. There's still great companies. But you kind of have to ride with, with the market. And I think that in terms of trade secrets, I don't know about... Trade secrets, they're just good investors. I'm on the marketing side, right? Not on the investment team. So I don't feel like I'm... They're just building companies themselves. They're aware of, I think, what goes into that, uh, what goes into a great founder. And they look to fund people when they find them who are great. And I, I wish there was more to it than that, but it's, it's really that. Uh, there's too much money right now. The uh, environment is way too frothy. And um, I think that this is something that a lot of investors are going to have to grapple with in the next few years to come. We got really used to seeing people raise very dumb money and um, on the expectation that five or 10 years from when they raised, they were going to deliver some massive returns. And most of them are not going to deliver returns at all. It's going to be even harder to raise. And uh, I think the I think the firms that are more, I don't know, exhibiting a little bit more responsibility are going to probably just do better. You think Trump's going to win? Yeah, I do. I think it's going to be an immigration year. And I think that all that's going to matter is what Americans think about immigration and what they think about the candidates in terms of how they speak about immigration. And I think that just based on the record and the rhetoric that we've seen historically, I think Trump is much better poised to navigate that conversation than Biden, who's responsible for, I mean, how many millions of, is it 12, eight, somewhere between eight and whatever, so it's like 12 million people maybe, like how many illegal immigrants have crossed the border since, so Biden, since, since Biden opened it? Um, that's gonna be really hard to navigate. So I, I think, yeah, I think, it's Trump, I think it's Trump's game to lose. That was an epically pregnant pause that was very much worth the wait. Uh, Mike Solana, thanks so much for joining us and Godspeed. Thank you for having me. So that's all the time we got. Until next time around, if you found this conversation very meaningful, please consider becoming a Blaze TV subscriber to help us create more content just like this. Yum, yum, yum. Go to blazetv.com, use the code ZeroHour20 for $20 off your first year of Blaze TV. This is Zero Hour. I'm James Polis. May God have mercy. That's all.